What you are listening to is just one part of a series created for the review of AP European history. If you're a student reviewing for your class or the AP exam, I suggest that you take notes. Perhaps you're a history buff and enjoy the subject matter. Either way, welcome and enjoy. The Hundred Years' War was an extended series of battles that lasted 116 years between France and England from 1337 to 1453 over the right to rule France. This war, more than any other, helped solidify the birth of the French monarchy and the nation-state of France. This war also saw the cultural and linguistical birth of England and helped to shift English eyes towards global dominance. In this war, you see the names of Joan of Arc, Henry V, the names of national heroes. In this war, the Battle of Cresset, the Battle of Agnicourt, and the Siege of Orleans, the tales of victory. And through all of this, this war, the Hundred Years' War, gives us the difficulty of separating fact from myth and myth from legend. For the Hundred Years' War, we're going to be analyzing four major questions. First, what were the underlining and precipitating causes of the Hundred Years' War? Second, what advantages did each side have in this conflict? Third, why were the French finally able to drive the English almost entirely out of France? And fourth, how did the Hundred Years' War contribute to a growing sense of national identity in France and England? The first cause of the Hundred Years' War was dynastic. From a French perspective, the King of France, Philip IV, died in 1314. His son, Louis X, took the crown and died two years later in 1316. Louis' younger brother, Philip V, became king in 1316, and his death eventually allowed Charles IV, his brother, to become king in 1322. When Charles IV died without a male heir, the Kingdom of France was faced with a dilemma. The last surviving child of Philip IV was his daughter, Isabella. Isabella was married to King, uh, the King of England, Edward II. That marriage produced Edward III and the nephew of Charles IV, hence the closest male heir to the French crown. The debate arose if Edward III could inherit the French crown that his mother did not have. If the crown passed to Edward III, this would allow the British crown to potentially control both England and France, something that the French, of course, would not want. To prevent this, the French Assembly of Barons decided to exclude royal inheritance through a female heir. Additionally, later popes will help to solidify and confirm Salic law, stating that male heirs could not take the crown through their mothers. The next closest heir to the French crown was Philip, the cousin of Charles IV. Philip was the son of Count Charles of Valois. Charles of Valois was the younger brother of King Philip IV. And Philip VI was crowned king in 1328. 
The second cause of the Hundred Years' War was territorial. In 1259, the Treaty of Paris made English kings vassals of Aquitaine. A vassal was somebody who owned property, but did so under the idea that they would pay homage to the king. And when the kings, or these vassals, excuse me, would pay homage to the king, they had to do so two ways. They had to do so with bare head and unarmed. Bare head meaning that they did not wear a crown or some sort of symbol of power on their head, trying to show up the king, saying that they would be stronger or equal or greater than the king, and surely not a sword on their hip coming unarmed, because that would be a challenge or maybe even a physical threat to the king. When Edward III, vassal of Aquitaine, king of England, showed up to pay homage to Philip VI, the king of France, Edward III showed up with a crown and a sword, two symbolic ways of challenging Philip VI. Additionally, Edward III helped to provide shelter for Robert III of Artois. Robert III and Philip VI were enemies of one another. Robert III was found to have doctored documents or forgeries, and when he escaped, he went to go seek shelter, and Edward III gave him shelter. Yet another way of adding more animosity between Philip VI and Edward III in the story. In 1337, Philip VI, King of France, restored Aquitaine under French rule, simply took Aquitaine away from the King of England and the vassals. Edward III sees this as a treaty violation and as a cause of war. And of course, he uses this treaty violation and this cause of war to bring up the argument yet again that he should be the rightful King of France and not Philip VI. What advantages did each side have in this conflict? For France, France had three times the population of England. It was far the wealthier of the two lands, and the war was to be fought on French home soil. But before 1415, the major battles of the Hundred Years' War resulted in English victories. Why? Well, because of internal disunity brought on by endemic social conflict. France was still struggling to make the transition from a feudal state to a centralized modern state. France essentially was the king of France, surrounded by vassals and thefts. All these smaller uh, feudalist systems and areas and countrysides that didn't really have a unified effort or sense of France. If you were a vassal, you had your own property. Yeah, you paid homage to the king, but you also had a symbolic sense of power and independence from the king. You could potentially disobey the king and join the opposite side. And in England, you didn't have that. England was much more centralized under the dominance of the king, not complete, surely, but also parliament who supported the king. To raise money, French kings depreciated their currency and borrowed heavily from Italian bankers, which created even more conflict. And in 1355, to secure more money and more funds, the French kings turned to the Estates General. The Estates General levied taxes on behalf of the king or collected taxes on behalf of the king, but the members oftentimes were looking to extend their own independence, their own sovereignty, and that eventually led to deepening territorial divisions. As for the English, the English had a superior military. Their infantry was far more disciplined. Also, the English had two formidable weapons in the Hundred Years' War. The first was the longbow. A longbow archer could fire six arrows a minute with enough force to pierce an inch of wood or the armor of a knight from 200 yards. Crossbow archers could only load and fire one shot in that same time, a clear advantage for the English. The second weapon that the English brought in the Hundred Years' War was the cannon. Although the cannons fired coarse circular stones and not iron balls as in later times, 
and their accuracy was quite suspect. The exploding sounds of the cannons often scared the enemies, driving their side into chaos. Unlike the French, who were still stuck in the feudal age, the English kings were also far shrewder in state building. The English had a strong centralized state consisting of king and parliament. We'll be looking at the Hundred Years' War in three stages. Stage one, the conflict during the reign of Edward III. Stage two, the French defeat and the Treaty of Troyes. And stage three, Joan of Arc and the war's end. Stage one, conflict during the reign of Edward III. Before their eminent invasion, England and Flanders signed an alliance. Edward III hoped that a joint invasion of France by England and Flanders would result in a quick victory. Edward's invasion resulted in the defeat of the French fleet at Sois, but the invasion of France from Flanders failed. In 1346, the English were crossing northern France in an attempt to meet up with the forces from Flanders. Upon hearing that the forces of Flanders had turned back, Edward III set up a defensive position on the hillside near the town of Cresset. When the larger French force and their mercenary Genovese crossbowmen arrived for battle, the English unleashed their two most important weapons of the Hundred Years' War, the longbow and the cannon. The French moved their Genovese mercenary crossbowmen into position and opened fire. As a response, the English moved their longbowmen forward. The medieval Arthur, Sir John Fussar, writing in his chronicles, sets up the stage of battle. Quote, During this time, a heavy rain fell, accompanied by thunder and a very terrible eclipse of the sun. Shortly afterward, it cleared up, and the sun showed very bright, but the French had it in their faces and the English on their backs. When the Genovese were somewhat in order, they approached the English and set up a large shout in order to frighten them. But the English remained quite quiet. It did not seem to attend to it. They, the Genovese, then set up a second shout and advanced a little forward. The English never moved. Still, they hooted a third time, advancing with their crossbows present, and began to shoot. The English archers then advanced one step forward and shot their arrows with such force and quickness that it seemed as if it snowed. When the Genovese felt the arrows, which pierced through their armor, some of them cut the strings of their crossbows. Others flung them to the ground and all turned about and retreated quite discomfited. End quote. As the Genovese decided to retreat, they ended up being trampled by French cavalry that advanced, completely sending France into chaos. Amongst this chaos, the English decided a second volley of longbowmen creating utter destruction amongst the French forces. Once the battle was over, the English remained in their defensive position along the hillside, and the French had retreated. Once the French had been retreated, and England understood that the battle was over, the English decided to descend amongst the French position and count the dead. The numbers are staggering. Sir John Foissart continues in his account, Quote, When Edward was assured that there was no appearance of the French collecting another army, he sent to have the number and rank of the dead examined. This business was entrusted to Lord Reginald Cobham and Lord Stafford, assisted by three heralds to examine the arms and two secretaries to write down the names. They passed the whole day upon the battlefield and made very circumstantial account of all they saw. According to their report, it appeared that 80 banners, the bodies of 11 princes, 1,200 knights, and about 30,000 common men were found dead on the field. End quote. The Battle of Cresset was perhaps the most important battle of the Hundred Years' War. First, it signaled the pronounced superiority of the English military. It introduced explosives and missile warfare 
and reduced hand-to-hand combat. Second, it also crippled French power for the next 100 years. Third, the English victory at Cressay allowed the English to take the port of Calais. In 1347, the Hundred Years' War was suspended because of the plague. In 1356, the English defeated the French in the Battle of Poitiers, a repetition of Cressay, and captured the then-French king, John the Good. The capture and consequent ransom left the French estates general in power. The estates had hoped to create limits on the power of the French king and increase their own power of the feudal lords and the vassals, something that resembled what the British had in the Magna Carta. However, because the estates generals were so interested in looking to increase their own individual power, the decree was ultimately unsuccessful. This led to increased divisions in France that would ultimately hinder and fracture their efforts to defeat the English. What did result was the forcing of French peasants to pay increased taxes and repair to war-damaged properties without compensation. These were both results of the Black Death and the Hundred Years' War. This led to the Jacquerie, a peasant revolt of 1358. It was led by Jacques Bonhomme, or Simple Jack. The revolt was ultimately crushed. On May 9, 1360, the English forced the French to sign the Peace of Bretigny-Calais. Edward III acquired more French territories and also retook Aquitaine without having to pay homage to the French kings. This peace became symbolic in two ways. It is seen as the height of English power on the continent, as well as an end of the first phase of the Hundred Years' War. England and France were at peace. Stage 2. French Defeat and the Treaty of Troyes The peace between France and England lasted only nine years. In 1364, the war recommenced, and by 1377, the French had driven the English back to the coast. In 1381, a revolt in England by oppressed peasants and urban town folk, led by John Ball and Watt Tyler, rocked England. It started from attempts to fix labor wages to pre-plague levels, high taxes due to the Hundred Years' War, and an unpaid poll tax. After seven months, the revolt was crushed. In 1415, the English scored yet another major victory at Anincourt, re-establishing a period of English dominance in the war. The Treaty of Troyes in 1420 placed Henry V of England as the official successor to the French king. In 1429, Henry VI was proclaimed the King of England, and in 1431, he was crowned the King of France. However, most French saw the son of Charles VI, Charles VII, as their true heir to the French crown. The second stage of the Hundred Years' War brings us to the lowest point for France in the conflict. Defeated, politically divided, and under the rule of a foreign power, France seemingly slipped into what might be described as a post-apocalyptic world, perhaps one that even Thomas Hobbes would be proud. It was anarchic, each man for himself and ruthless. At times, perhaps even animal versus man, In the book, The Middle Ages, author Morris Bishop shed some insight into the resulting chaos that France slipped into between the years of 1370 to 1444. Quote, France was less fortunate than Burgundy. The Journal of a Paris Burger complains in 1421 of exortionate taxes and high prices. Quote, Every day and every night, one heard everywhere in Paris only pitiable outcries because of the cost and scarcity of everything. I doubt if the lamentations of Jeremiah the prophet were more keen when the city of Jerusalem was entirely destroyed and the children of Israel were led to Babylon in captivity. 
For night and day, men and women kept crying, Alas, I die of cold, of hunger. End quote. The good citizens established refuges and soup kitchens, but these were never enough. The poor ate garbage that pigs scorned, raw cabbage cores, grass. In the hospitals, the dying were heaped with the dead. In 1439, ravenous wolves devoured 14 people in the region between Montmartre and Port Saint-Antoine and attacked shepherds in preference to sheep. In 1444, a great company of thieves and murderers camped outside Paris, seizing animals for food and people for ransom. The countryside was a waste of abandoned fields and burnt villages, sometimes occupied only by wild boars. The smiling fields of Normandy were tangles of briars and thickets. Roads were untended, bridges broken, river channels choked, harbors silted. The gangs of skinners and footwarmers roamed the country, looking for whatever had been overlooked by the armies, exhorting protection money, and burning and flaying those who did not pay up. The only security was within the guarded walls of the large towns and cities, and often only cultivated areas lay within eyeshot or earshot of the watchmen in the towers. But not all cities escaped. The Black Prince, now this is a reference to Edward III's son, Edward, who was known as the Black Prince, captured the city of Limoges in 1370. Irritated by its resistance, he had 300 inhabitants, men, women, and children, executed. End quote. By all means, Bishop's view of France between the years of 1370 and 1444 leaves little to be believed that France could change their fortunes. France was in need of a desperate miracle, and they will receive one in the form of a 19-year-old peasant girl by the name of Joan of Arc. Stage 3, Joan of Arc and the War's Conclusion The arrival of Joan of Arc turned the tide for France. At the age of 19, while working on her father's farm in Doremi, Joan saw visions of three saints, St. Catherine, St. Michael, and St. Margaret. She was told by these saints that she needed to drive the English out of France and to have the French Dauphine, or king-in-wait, Charles VII, crowned in the French city of Rheims. Joan approached Charles VII with her plan. Charles decided he had nothing to lose. He sent Joan to the city of Orleans, which had been under the siege by the English for six months. Joan provided the national moral boost the French armies needed to succeed. The English eventually gave up on the siege of Orleans. France had found their miracle in a 19-year-old peasant girl. Why were the French able to drive the English out of France? They were able to drive the English out of France because Joan of Arc gave the French a sense of national identity and destiny. She gave the French a reason to fight and win. Unfortunately, in 1430, Joan was captured by the Burgundians, Charles VII could have negotiated her release, but he didn't. The Burgundians handed Joan over to the English. Joan was charged and found guilty of heresy and cross-dressing. In 1431, Joan was burnt at the stake in the city of Rennes. In an effort to stop people from collecting any of her remains for religious relics, Joan's body was burnt down twice and thrown into the Seine River. In 1435, the Duke of Burgundy made peace with the French king, Charles VII. Combined, they were able to push the English back. By 1435, the war ended with England claiming only the enclave of Calais. What were the results of the Hundred Years' War? And how did the Hundred Years' War contribute to a growing sense of national identity in England and France? Both countries saw an increase in nationalism, 
identity, or union to the nation-state. But it most importantly awoke French nationalism, which quickened the pace in France to go from a divided feudal society, one made up of competing kings, lords, and vassals, to a centralized monarchical state. In England, the marches of early victories helped to establish national heroes and villains. Works by Shakespeare, including Henry V, helped to create a national sense of culture and language that connected all Englishmen. For France, devastation. One result was a huge loss of population for France and much of its farmland destroyed. Burgundy also became a major political power on the European scene. Another result of the Hundred Years' War was the increase in political representative assemblies, most importantly, English Parliament. Because English Parliament had been called so many times to collect taxes for the Hundred Years' War, it made Parliament feel like they were a major player in English politics. Their increased view of importance would eventually lead, in part, to the English Civil War. In conclusion, the Hundred Years' War was a conflict between the Kingdom of England and the Kingdom of France. The conflict saw over 40 years of war and over 60 years of peace and suspension. The conflict started because of dynastic and territorial claims, and at the Battle of Cresset, that battle helped lead to the demise of the crossbow and the success of the longbow, and it also introduced the cannon into European warfare. England saw repeated victories early into the conflict, which helped to create a unified England both linguistically and culturally, while helping to drive France into utter chaos. However, the arrival of Joan of Arc restored the French military with a fighting spirit for the country. She gave France the will to fight and to drive out the English. Consequently, the overall victory of the Hundred Years' War led to the creation of the French Kingdom.